0: I want to welcome you tonight to uh, Plum Creek Chapel, and uh, we are so delighted to be back in the saddle again after a, a break, but uh, ready to continue our study of what is Calvinism and is it biblical. And I tell you, it's been a busy week in the way of activities and announcements uh, at Not by Works Ministries, so let me take just a moment to tell you about some of the free resources that are out there uh, for you. Uh, first of all, last Sunday, hit the ground running, got back Saturday and preached a uh, Three times last Sunday, twice here, and then once over at Majestic View Church. And the topic there was the Great Satanic Reset, what to know and how to prepare. So that video is posted at notbyworks.org. Encourage you to watch that. And remember, all of our videos are also posted as podcasts. So if you're more of the podcast type that likes to listen while you're driving or working or whatever just to the audio, the same messages are also available on podcasts. But that was a two hour session, went really well, great response, over 200 people. Um, And I think the Lord really used it. And then Monday morning, I was on my monthly appearance on Stand Up for the Truth with David Fiorazzo. And we spent the entire hour on that radio program talking about the Supreme Court decision. And uh, that uh, podcast is titled SCOTUS Did Not Abolish Abortion. The Demonic Agenda Continues. So I encourage you to check that out. That's also available at the Not By Works website under the podcast tab under resources there or wherever you listen to your Podcast, just search for Not by Works Ministries. Then on Tuesday, our regular weekly appearance on Christian Underground News Network and talked about key days in Scripture, uh, sp- several days that are marked out in God's Word as having special significance. And so that was a really good, a lot of Scripture, a lot of theology, and really encouraging time. And then uh, yesterday, I wrote an article in the morning, and by This mid-afternoon, Harbinger's Daily had contacted me and said they picked it up and posted it. They retitled it, which is certainly their prerogative. I'm not the most creative guy in the world, so I appreciate it when a team of actual editors can make things better. But they call it, As the world is transfixed by chaos, has the church failed to recognize the urgency of the hour? Fairly short article, and you can check that out on the highlight carousel at notbyworks.org. Just click uh, the banner there. And then want to continue to remind you about the book. There are copies out in the lobby if you don't have one or you know someone that would benefit uh, from it. I got two different requests yesterday from people wanting 10 copies to give out. And uh, I said, absolutely. So we want to get the message out. It's the most important message of our day. And uh, so feel free to spread the word. And those of you watching online or watching the video at a later date, just go to spiritoftheantichrist.org and you can get a taste for what that book uh, is all about. Uh, Don't forget Sunday mornings at 9 o'clock we have our eschatology series, What Lies Ahead? A Biblical Overview of the End Times. And we're just starting to get into the eternal state. Uh, Now we won't be meeting this Sunday, so mark your calendars. We'll put a reminder up on the website. But uh, no live stream at 9 o'clock, no meeting at 9 o'clock, because we have our special Sedalia God and Country Day celebration. We'll be meeting outdoors uh, for a great time of celebrating the freedoms that we have in this country. And I'm going to be sharing a very important message entitled, uh, "What uh, America: Why America Needs the Church. And so that's this coming Sunday at 10 o'clock, but the uh, uh, 9 o'clock series will resume on the 10th. Okay, don't forget about the free mobile app. Uh, you can check that out at notbyworks.org. That's a good way to stay in touch with all of our podcasts and videos and articles and things like that. Well, we come to the next... Uh, key element of Calvinism tonight. This is our fifth session, but we spent the first four in the way of introduction and talking about total depravity, and I'm going to review that just briefly tonight. But tonight we're going to begin our discussion of unconditional election, unconditional election, and what that that means exactly. So remember the five points of Calvinism uh, are easily remembered by the acronym TULIP, and remember in our first session we talked about how these all came out of the Synod of Dort uh, and you know, 500 years ago. And uh, these five points are the basis for Calvinism today. Now, there are slight variations. You know, there may be different ways that a Calvinist scholar or theologian or Bible teacher defends each of these points, uh, different nuances. But by and large, they're lockstep uh, in the main points here. And those are total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. Remember, we talk about how for a lot of people, Calvinism is the only option because they see all of the Bible through a twofold lens, either Arminianism or Calvinism. And it's always struck me as odd because when you think about it, Calvinism and Arminianism didn't come about till the 16th century. So it's strange that if that's really all the Bible teaches, what did the Bible teach for the first you know, 1,500 years of the church age, when no one even knew about Calvin or Arminius? They didn't exist. Um, but sadly, that's the way most people view uh, Scripture. And so, because Arminianism is blatantly on its face a contradiction of Scripture, because it teaches that you can earn your way into salvation, salvation is by good works, and therefore you can lose your salvation, Uh, and most conservative evangelicals reject that notion, they then land in Calvinism as if it's the only other option. And what I've tried to do in this series is to point out that Calvinism is just another extreme that really what we want to do is say, what does the Word of God teach in its plain, normal sense? And there are aspects of Calvinism, uh, as we're going to talk about tonight, that I agree with. I just agree with what they say the implications of that are. Uh, I just disagree with that. Um, and so, you know, and of course, to the extent that Arminianism believes that we have an option to believe or disbelieve the gospel, I agree with that. We, we can believe, for sure, as we talked about the last couple of weeks. So we're just talking about balance here. And if you overemphasize either extreme, your, your theology, your whole biblical worldview is going to be out of balance. Now, uh, all of the material that we're talking about here is discussed in great detail in my book, Getting the Gospel Wrong. There are copies out on the table. If you don't have one, I encourage you to pick one up. We're happy to make that our gift to you Um, from Plum Creek Chapel. Uh, If you're watching online and you'd like to get it, we're offering a a discount code right now. Uh, Just use the code GOSPEL in all caps, and you can get that book uh, at a discount. So by way of review, just to remind you what total depravity is, according to Calvinists, total depravity means total inability. According to Calvinists, it is impossible for an unbeliever, a lost person, to believe the gospel. Uh, Man is not able to respond to the grace of God. He has no ability to come to Christ. He cannot choose to believe in Jesus Christ. God has to overpower man and force him to believe. In fact, he's not really even believing. God is doing the believing for him. That's their understanding of faith. So to a Calvinist, faith is simply the involuntary secondary response to something that God does completely outside of any uh, volition of mankind. So you're either elect or you're not. If you're elect, then you're in. That's the determining factor, not whether or not you believe. So then we said, well, what does the Bible say? And we pointed out that the Bible says that, in fact, man can receive the gift of salvation. Man can believe the gospel. Man can do the one thing that the Bible says more than 160 times in the New Testament alone that he has to do to be saved. And that is, believe the gospel. When Jesus, for example, said in John 6, 47, verily, verily, I say unto you, whoever believes in me has everlasting life, that was a bona fide offer. That was an accurate statement. He wasn't just floating something out there that was impossible for man to do. He was saying, uh, giving a cause and effect. If you believe, you'll be saved. He goes on later to say in John's Gospel, if you don't believe, you're going to die in your sins. So the determining factor is faith. Faith is not the involuntary response to regeneration. It's the instrumental cause of regeneration. It's what makes us saved. So we talked about how the fact that man is born dead in his trespasses and sins, according to Ephesians 2.1, simply means that we are separated from God. Death in Scripture, and there are five kinds of death that we went through, simply means separation in every case. So whenever you see the word die or died or dies or death in your English Bible, you should ask yourself, what's the separation here? And in the case of our spiritual condition, we are born separated from a holy God. There's nothing within us because of the depravity of man, that's what depravity means, uh, that can commend us to a holy God. We're separated from Him. It does not mean that we have no ability to believe, uh, the image of God in man is effaced, but not erased. But to a Calvinist, it's erased. When, when we sinned, everything within us went away, even our mental capacity to, understand, to hear and understand and believe the simple truth of the gospel message. But what we said uh, the Bible teaches is that sin separates man from God, but it does not in any way render us incapable of believing. And I gave Charles Ryrie's definition of depravity, which is completely contrary to the classic Calvinist interpretation. Calvinists define total depravity, as I said, as total inability. That's what they mean. When you hear a Calvinist say total depravity, just hear total inability. Now, a lot of people struggle with this issue of Calvinism because it's, a lot of it is semantics. So a Calvinist might say, J.B., don't you believe in total depravity? I'll say, Yes sir or ma'am, I do believe in total depravity. And then they go, okay, so what's the problem? Well, the problem, as is usually the case in theology, is with definitions. And they define total depravity completely different than the way I define it. And I believe the way I define it is the way the Bible teaches it, which is completely separated from a holy God. There's no place, not a single place in the Bible, where it suggests that an unregenerate person is incapable of believing. You can't find it. And quite the contrary, there are plenty of places where clearly unsaved people are told that they can believe, and, and, and we see in the biblical record the fact that they made a choice not to believe. So we have examples of unbelievers making a choice. So total depravity, I think the best definition is by Charles Ryrie. He says, Total depravity does not mean that everyone is as thoroughly depraved in his actions as he could possibly be. So it's easy for us to conceptualize depravity when we see the mass murderer, Or the, you know, child sex trafficking or some of the horrific sins that we see out there. And we think, wow, if that doesn't epitomize the depravity of man, right? That's kind of what we think. Well, the next time you catch yourself thinking that, I want you to take a good look in the mirror. Because our hidden sins of gossip or jealousy or covetousness or anger or whatever it might be are just as much a reflection of the depravity of man as the big ones. See, we're all depraved. And as Ryrie points out, that doesn't mean that we're all as depraved in our actions as we could possibly be. I mean, there's always room for more sin. (laughs) Um, But it does mean, and he goes on to tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that we will indulge in every form of sin, right? I mean, you know, there are certain uh, propensities that people have in their depraved nature. There are certain things that tempt some people more than they might tempt others. Uh, So it doesn't mean that Uh, I'm going to indulge in every form of sin. But the fact that in my depravity, I'm able... I'm speaking now as a believer. The fact that in my depravity, through the indwelling Holy Spirit and the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, I'm able to walk in the Spirit and not the flesh, and therefore I'm I'm able to not indulge in some sins because I'm walking in the Spirit, walking by faith, doesn't mean that I'm not still depraved. Depravity uh, doesn't go away when the Holy Spirit takes up residence. Calvinists teach that it does. We talked about this. Calvinists teach that when you get saved, the old nature is eradicated. They do not believe in a dual nature of of mankind as believers. They believe in a singular nature. So we believe there's a a dual nature, and the flesh lusts against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. The two are contrary to one another. Paul talks about the old man versus the new man, and we should walk in the new man and not after the old man, and so forth. So uh, the fact that we are able in our lives hopefully through the power of the spirit and not just through willpower nobody becomes practical in their righteousness by their own willpower let's make that clear Uh, unbelievers using their willpower can act morally right doesn't mean they're a christian Um, so i'm talking here about truly surrendering aspects of our life to the spirit that we are able to overcome in our walk with the lord the fact that we can do that in some areas but not other areas doesn't mean that somehow, you know, we are uh, less depraved or whatever. It, 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 We're all depraved. And, you know, one of the big issues with Calvinism that we're going to talk about when we get to especially perseverance, the fifth point, is their indication, and I've had conversations as recently as this past week with people about this, uh, their tendency is to look at people who are committing some of the more abhorrent sins, and to be sure there are degrees of consequence and degrees of punishment in hell even for unbelievers based on the, the degree of sin. But it all, all of it separates us from God, and, and Calvinists are so quick to look at others that are in, involved in some sin, especially if it's a outward manifestation, sexual sins, uh, drugs, alcohol, things that, where their behavior is totally not conforming to the image of Christ. And they'll say, oh, "Well, there's no way that person can be a Christian. Yet all the while they know, if they're honest and look inside their own heart, that there are certain sins in their life that they're still trying to bring into captivity to Christ and to conform to the image of Christ. And so that there's an incipient pride there that says somehow my sins don't disqualify me, but those sins disqualify that person. And what I'm here to say is sin, once you've trusted in Christ and believe the gospel, Sin doesn't disqualify anybody. You understand that? All of our sins are covered by the blood of Christ the moment we place our faith in Jesus Christ. And nothing we can do after that moment, however terrible, can undo what happened at that precise moment when faith meets the gospel. And as you've heard me say multiple times, there's no sin that an unbeliever can commit that a believer might not also commit if he or she is walking in the flesh. We've got to resist this urge to, to somehow look at other people and decide whether they're in or out. So back to the definition, Ryrie says, it do, don't, total depravity does not mean that everyone is as thoroughly depraved in his actions as he could possibly be, nor that everyone will indulge in every form of sin, nor that a person cannot appreciate and even do acts of goodness. I said that a moment ago. Unbelievers can act morally, right? But how does God view those righteous acts? That's filthy rags, right, according to Isaiah the prophet. So, you know, we need to understand that, um, you know, we're not saved by works, uh, and, you know, there's a difference between our position in Christ, which can only be accomplished by faith. You know, remember what Abraham said, uh, what Genesis 15 says, Abraham believed God, and that's what declared him righteous. Today, Paul explains it very thoroughly in his book of Romans, that we are justified, that is, declared righteous positionally before a holy God. How? By faith. By faith, by faith, by faith. In fact, um, real quickly, uh, flip over to uh, Romans chapter... Give me a second, I think it's at the end of chapter 9. It's not on the screen, obviously. Uh, Romans 9, chapter, chapter 9, verse uh, 30. So here Paul is using a rhetorical device to anticipate the objections of his readers. And in chapters 9 through 11, as you may know, he's talking about Israel and what what about Israel and where do they fit into this plan? Has God forsaken them entirely and so forth? And so at the end of chapter 9, people might be thinking, well, wait a minute. Are you here to tell me that Israel, God's chosen nation, the apple of his eye, God has rejected them and now salvation is coming to Gentiles? And so what does he say? So so he anticipates this question this way. He says, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness of faith? But by contrast, Israel who pursued the law of righteousness, later he says zealously, has not attained to the law of righteousness? What are you saying, Paul? Why is this? Verse 32, because they the Jews, did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. So there's two kinds of righteousness, and and if people could ever get their hands around this principle, it would revolutionize the way we live for Christ. There's positional righteousness, and there is practical righteousness. Our positional righteousness comes only by faith, and every born-again Christian is born is positionally righteous before a holy God. That's, that's who we are. We're in Christ. Nothing can change that. We're part of the family of God. We're reborn spiritually, born again. That's positional righteousness. It only happens by faith. And everyone who's trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone for salvation is, is positionally righteous. But the fact of the matter is our positional righteousness does not guarantee that everything we do is going to be practically righteous, right? And that's easy enough to prove. Certainly it's it's transparent in biblical theology, but it's also true experientially because everyone in this room still sins. And when you sin, you're not acting righteous. You're acting unrighteous. But your practical behavior is not necessarily any indication of your position because a believer can sin. So the fact is we sometimes act inconsistent with who we are in Christ. And I think what Paul is saying here is that in the same way, unbelievers who are positionally unrighteous, they're not a child of God, they're still a child of the devil, sometimes they can act righteously, right? Practically. But that's not how you get saved, is what Paul's saying. Nobody gets saved because of righteous acts that they do. They get saved by faith. So I've always found it uh, really stunning that the same people who tend to look at sinful behavior and say, look at that person, they can't possibly be a Christian, aren't consistent, and and don't look at moral people, say Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses or others, who are pretty moral people, I mean, right? But they deny the deity of Christ, they don't believe Jesus is the only way to salvation, they have all kinds of uh, theological views that would prohibit them from believing the gospel. They're unsaved. And they would never look at that righteous person and say, oh, look how righteous that person is. He must be a believer, right? They won't do that. So it's a one-sided, lopsided uh, view, and I think um, that's what uh, Ryrie is saying here: is that we can, uh, an unbeliever who's totally depraved, might still do acts of goodness. So what does total depravity mean? That it means that the corruption of sin extends to all parts of all men, so that there is nothing within us that can merit, uh, give him merit in God's sight, nothing. We need a blood transfusion. We need the righteousness of Christ imputed to us so that when we stand before the Holy God, He doesn't see our sin. He sees Christ's righteousness. That's total depravity uh, in a nutshell. Total depravity. Uh, Not total inability, but total depravity. So uh, we looked at a lot of Scripture. We looked at some biblical proofs for that. But the biggest takeaway is there's not a single passage in Scripture that plainly says... An unregenerate person is incapable of believing. That is a theological postulation that is not supported by Scripture. We can prove man is dead, no doubt. Uh, Man is born dead in his trespasses and sins, but that does not mean unable to believe. It simply means separated from a holy God. All right, any questions about that before we go on to uh, the second point of Calvinism? Any comments or questions? Yes. Yes. Right, the whole point of the cross was reconciliation. Amen. <laughs> if you're looking for an amen, you got one. Yeah, so again, for Calvinists, it's a lockstep system. It's a zero-sum game. So man com- is completely, utterly incapable of doing anything. It's, it's, as you've heard me say many times, it's the it on God. Everything God does. And that's the reason why if, if someone's living in sin... In their theology, they can work backwards and say, well, if he's living in sin, if he's not persevering in good works, he must not be saved because the Holy Spirit would never allow him to sin. And if he doesn't have the Holy Spirit, he's not regenerate. If he's not regenerate, he never expressed faith. And you know, so it's just, it's a slippery slope backwards. Yeah. Right. So, they would, so the comment is, that doesn't that minimize what Christ did for us on the cross? And by the way, and I know I say this a lot, but I get emails all the time, and I got another very gracious, wonderful email either this morning or last night um, where the person was saying, hey, by the way, is there any way you can invest in a microphone for the audience because the awkward silence during the sessions when you're hearing questions is really awkward. I understand that. I'm sorry. It's not usually that long maybe 15 seconds and I get it. And I always try to preface it with, hey, if you hear silence, you're listening to a question and I repeat every question all the time. I know it's not ideal. We're not, you know, this isn't a, you know, you know, million dollar studio or something. We are our priority, by the way, at least in my mind, my priority when I'm up here on Sundays and Wednesdays is the local body. I'm here for Plum Creek Chapel and I get enthused by it and I get involved in it. We're having back and forth and discussions and the fact that we record it and post it for not by works is just sort of a a added benefit or an added bonus. I don't mean to say we don't care about those people that watch the videos or live stream because we have exponentially more people that live stream and watch the videos that are sitting here in the room, but my heart is with Plum Creek Chapel when I'm in the pulpit here. And so for us, it's it's not a problem. We're hearing the questions and answering it, but I do appreciate it is a, a tough situation. It's not the most professional way to do recordings, but I do try to Repeat the question every time, so if you'll just be patient for those sometimes 10, 15, 20 seconds while we're hearing a question on the floor, we will repeat it. And Lord willing, someday as, if, as God provides and opportunities arise, we will have the ability to record questions uh, on the video as well. So you were talking about how doesn't that minimize, uh, you know, God's... We're all born in sin. Yeah. Adam, right? right. We're all born in sin. So they would say, Calvinists would say just the opposite. They would say somehow we're minimizing the glory of God because we're participating in our salvation. Now we're not. We don't say that. The Bible doesn't say that. And dispensationalists don't say that. But that's what they accuse us of. Because in their mind, receiving a gift is a work. Now in no other world is receiving a free gift a work. I've proven that many times. But somehow, theologically, they think simply receiving the gift paid for by the blood of Christ, receiving it, that in and of itself is a work and somehow is defined in a Calvinist view as earning your salvation. That's not the case, though. Yeah? So, do they believe that Christ had to die on the cross? Do they believe that Christ had to die on the cross? Oh, boy, now you're getting into uh, uh, the issue of... uh, Oh, I can't think of the theological term, Fred, could you, uh, whether, impeccability. Now you're getting into impeccability. Could, could Christ have sinned? Could he have called 10,000 angels? Could he have, you know, could, could he have done something to not go to the cross? No, our faith is based on Jesus, who he was, how he died, why he died, right. and why he rose from they not also believe that? Yeah, they absolutely believe that our faith is based on the person and work of Christ, They just believe that we don't have the capacity to express that faith. God has to do it for us. That's the key. God does it all. You do nothing. You are an utterly and complete passive agent. You're walking along the street as an unregenerate person. All of a sudden, you get zapped and you go, whew, and then you believe. I just believe the gospel. How did I do that? I don't know. God did it. I guess now I'm saved. So faith is sort of the indication that someone has been elect, not the means by which they become regenerated. So it's just a it's just a different order. So it's what theologians for centuries have called the debate over the or- ordo salutis, you know, or the order of salvation. Does faith cause our salvation or does is faith the result of our salvation and God does it all? Yeah. So uh, did the Calvinists like, just rewrite the Bible and make their own Bible? <laughs> did the Calvinists rewrite the Bible? And make their own uh, Bible. Uh, well, I mean, they, we do have the ESV translation, but that's another story. Um, no, they, uh, I think they, it's just a matter of a hermeneutic. Remember, we spent that whole series on how to read and understand the Bible? Their methodology is different. They don't uh, understand the Bible in its literal grammatical historical approach. They really don't. They theologize and synthesize passages to make their points. And by the way, that's the reason that, by and large, most Calvinists are also amillennialists. They don't believe in a literal earthly kingdom. Not all of them. So those of you that are already typing out an email, I I can see it. I understand. There's the John MacArthur's of the world uh, who, by his own definition, is a leaky dispensationalist because he knows that his view is inconsistent. He's dispensational in his eschatology. So he literally believes in the rapture and a second coming and a literal earthly kingdom but he's Calvinistic in his definition of salvation. So that's not normal. He's an anomaly. Um, And there are others. He's not alone. But the vast majority of Calvinists, because of an underlying error in hermeneutics, uh, and I get into this in the book, by the way. I talk about a lot of the passages that Calvinists, especially guys like MacArthur, use to defend their view on salvation come from the Gospels. And they fail to distinguish between discipleship and salvation. So Sunday, in our worship hour, we talked about the distinction between a disciple and a Christian. And they're not the same thing. And so a lot of the passages that we find in Scripture where Jesus is telling people how to be fully devoted disciples, the Calvinists take as that's Jesus telling people how to have eternal life. If you want to go to heaven, do this. If you want to go to heaven, take up your cross. If you want to go to heaven, don't put your hand to the plow and look back. If you want to go to heaven, count the cost before you build that tower. And none of that is true. Jesus doesn't say any of that. He says, if you want to be a disciple, count the cost. Don't put your hand to the plow and look back. Uh, you know, take up your cross. Leave father and mother and so forth. Those are all discipleship passages, not how to get to heaven passages. So, uh, it, and so I talk about in the book how MacArthur and many others, when they defend their view of, of how to get saved... They go to these passages and take them out of context and fail to distinguish with dispensational sensitivity the Gospels from the church age epistles. So, uh, so no, I mean, they don't have their own Bible. I know what you mean, you're tongue-in-cheek, but they just have a different way of handling it. They really do. Um, so, uh, any other comments or thoughts? Yeah? So, they don't believe you have free will. That's the whole point, uh, as an unbeliever. So they would say you don't have free will, which is why you don't have the ability uh, to believe. Remember, they are over here on the extreme side of sovereignty. So they're not comfortable with free will. Free will is a bad word to them. If you mention free will, you're an Arminian. It's like that letter I got. I think I told you this a couple weeks into our series. I got an old-fashioned letter. The first words were, Dr. Hickson, comma, so, comma, you're an Arminian, exclamation point. Even though if you go back and look at my first two sessions, I plainly disavowed Arminianism. But to them, the fact that I believe you have the ability to believe the gospel, that makes me an Arminian because they don't have any other option. It's, it's either Coke or Pepsi. That's it. If you want iced tea, go somewhere else because it ain't happening. So, uh, so no, they they don't like free will at all. You don't have free will. You can't choose to believe. Um but again, you know, it's, it's amazing to me that the, the idea of, you know, receiving a free gift is relegated to a work in their view. I don't understand that. I mean, but in their mind, if you do anything, then somehow you are working. So, I mean, think about it logically. If I had a, a birthday present. Let's say it's Gary's birthday, and I say, hey, Gary, I bought you this present. I love you, brother. I want you to have this gift, and, and he takes it, right? Now, later on, if he's telling someone about this wonderful new gift, let's say it's a, I don't know, what do you want for your birthday, Gary? A new microphone, okay. Uh, And he's saying, look at this new microphone. I I got it for my gift. Oh, wow, you got that? And they totally gave it to you for free. And Gary would go, no, no, I mean, 90% of it was free, but I had to contribute 10%. Would Gary think that? Of course not. In no sense is he going to think that he contributed anything to that gift. He took it, yes. He had to physically take possession of it. But that's not working. And yet to a Calvinist, if you reach out to receive the, the free, the offer of eternal life from Christ, you've contributed something. And in their mind it's now 90% Jesus, 10% you. Now we're saying no, it's nothing in my hand I bring simply to the cross I cling. But you got to come to the cross. I mean you got to receive the gift. It's freely offered and it must be freely received. A gift that is forced upon you is no longer a gift. Right? It's 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 a wage. It's it's a forced love is no love at all. So uh, so, yeah, I mean, that's the, that's the real crux of the matter. I mean, we're going to come back to it again and again and again as we go through each of the five points of Calvinism, that to them, receiving the free gift of eternal life is a work. Believing the gospel is a work. And I already talked about how in uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, they interpret the gift there uh, as faith, whereas we showed you grammatically in the Greek language it can't possibly be faith. The gift is salvation, not faith. Because otherwise, first of all, grammatically it doesn't work uh, because pronouns have to agree with their antecedent in number and gender. But secondly, it just would create this sort of endless tautology where you receive a gift with a gift. Well, where do you get the gift to receive the gift of receiving the gift? I mean, you just it's constantly, everything is a gift. So it's a category confusion. There's a gift and there's a means of receiving the gift. The means of receiving the gift is not the gift. They're different. So, but to a Calvinist, it is the the gift is faith, and even though the Bible makes it very clear that it's by faith we're saved, what they mean it's by the gift of faith you're saved. So, it just it's 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 it'll it'll become more clear as we look at more and more of their quotes. But let's move on to election. Now, this is where at, in in times pass, and again, I've taught this for 33 years, taught it at the college and graduate levels, and so I've I've engaged in just about every argument I can think of about it. And But here's where inevitably is I tend to lose some of the non-Calvinists. Yes, non-Calvinists. Some of the people that agree with me, that are dispensational, grace-oriented. Because most of the people, honestly, that hold that the view that I hold, do not believe in election. They say that you know, election either is always referring to national Israel, or they define it in other more strict ways. So they, in their minds, in order to uh, rebut Calvinism, you have to disavow election altogether. Now, as I've talked about, I don't believe that's true. I believe that the Bible can teach two truths that seem to be contradictory, contradictory to man's mind, but in fact, both are true. I'm going to get into that in more detail. I don't think in this section, I think I get into it, well, I can't remember, but somewhere along the way, I have a whole section where I'm going to talk about a biblical antinomy, which is biblical truths that seem to defy logic but one of these which i believe very strongly is the bible teaches election i never denied that but the bible also teaches free will now can i make sense of that no but romans 11 i think uh Soquel, last time we met talked about that verse and i've quoted it often myself uh makes it clear that uh you know man's ways are not God's ways who can know the mind of God we don't we don't his judgments are past our finding out so we we're not entitled to understand the eternal God of the universe so we think of things uh, in terms of cause and effect and sequential order and time space and matter so for us it's very difficult to get our hands around the fact that God chooses yet we have free will to receive or reject but the Bible teaches both the problem is not with the election here but with the first part Unconditional. That's where the problem comes in. That's where the rub is for me. Because they say there are no conditions whatsoever for God giving salvation and no conditions whatsoever for our receiving salvation. That's what they mean by number two. Let me say that again. There are no conditions for God giving salvation and none for our receiving salvation. I couldn't disagree more strenuously. There is one condition that is repeated. Over 160 times. I have an appendix at the back of getting the gospel wrong that lists every one of them. What is that one condition? Faith or belief. Exactly. Exactly. So Calvinists insist that God has elected some to go to heaven and others to go to hell, and that election is unconditional. The individual has absolutely nothing to do with it. God has chosen some to be saved, and those who have chosen to be saved are forced to believe through no conscious volition of their own. As I've said a hundred times, faith is the involuntary response to salvation, they say, not the instrumental cause of it. So God has also determined that certain people will perish. These people were created for eternal damnation. Remember the quotes we read a couple of weeks ago from John Piper and uh, R.C. Sproul Jr., that God wanted Adam and Eve to sin in the garden. God is the author of evil. God is the author of Hitler. God ordained Hitler to slaughter millions of Jews and Stalin to slaughter tens of millions of people uh, because that's the only option they have if they are over here emphasizing sovereignty. And I'm not sitting here claiming that I have the magic answer to the timeless deep com- conflict between free will and sovereignty. I mean, if I could solve that, I'd also solve the Middle East peace process, right? I mean, that's something we just take on faith. God's Word clearly says... God elects, and we're about to look at some of that. But it also says we have free will. Down here, that seems contradictory. But when we leave this realm of time, space, and matter, and God destroys the old earth under the curse of sin and recreates it in sinless perfection, then it'll make sense, perhaps, at that point. But right now, we just take it on faith, right? So let's look at some, again, I always like to start in their words how they define this second point of Calvinism. R.C. Sproul said, unconditional election means that our election is decided by God according to His purpose, according to His sovereign will. He goes on, Calvinism teaches not just election, again, that's not the rub, for me anyway, but unconditional election, meaning that the electing grace that God gives to those whom He saves is not based upon some condition that He sees in them, but it is sovereignly based in the good pleasure of His will. Sounds kind of you know, heady and theological and saying, you know, it's like, who could disagree with that? Except for one thing, more than 160 times the Bible says, I must believe if I'm going to have eternal life. And not only does it say that, but it says just the opposite. Look at John chapter 3. Uh, this may come up later, I can't remember. Uh, John chapter 3 and beginning in verse 16. For God so loved the world, that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. Now listen to this. He who believes in Him is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So why are we condemned? Because we don't believe. Why are we saved? Because we believe. That sounds conditional to me. And again, 160 times that idea is repeated. We see it again in John uh, uh, 8 24, I think it is. Let me see. Jesus said in John 8 24, Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. That's a clear cause and effect. If then, if you do not believe, you're going to go to hell. Dying your sins means you'll have to pay the eternal penalty for your sin. But if you do believe, you're saved. Cause, effect, conditional. J.I. Packer said God's election is a free, sovereign, unconditional choice of sinners as sinners to be redeemed by Christ, given faith, and brought to glory. Again, there's no condition for Calvinists, not even faith. Faith is given to you. You don't have a choice. So you see how they're defining it? It's important to understand what they mean by unconditional election. You do not have to believe the gospel to be saved. And as I've said you know, previously in studying Calvinists for years and writing my Ph.D. dissertation on this issue, there are some Calvinists who are at least intellectually honest enough to say in print that in their minds there will be people in heaven who have never believed the gospel. Because believing the gospel is just ancillary. What really matters is are you elect or not. And in, some, in the minds of some Calvinists, if you die uh, before you have the opportunity to be given the gift of faith, you know, the fact that you're elect means you're in heaven. That's the same reason that why many Calvinists, not all, uh, many Calvinists say that uh, 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 babies that are murdered in the womb, Some go to heaven, some go to hell. You know what makes the difference? If you're elect, baby, you go to heaven. If you're not elect, you go to hell. And that's what some Calvinists believe. Um, So, uh, and as I've said, in talking to people and and trying to talk to them about the Lord, a Calvinist would never say to a person, hey, you know, God loves you and sent his son to die for you. Because as we're going to see with the third point of Calvinism, they don't believe God sent his son to die for everybody. He didn't. And so you you talk to a Calvinist, next time you talk to a Calvinist, ask them, "Would would you tell a perfect stranger who you believe is not a Christian, would you tell them that God loved them and sent his son to die for them? If they say they would, then they're not a Calvinist and they would be in big trouble if Calvinists heard them say that. Yeah. How do, they get, to the faith. how do they get from what? How do they get someone to come to their faith? Well, if, I, if I go so well, first tell me whether I'm elect or not. And if I'm not elect, I'm out of here. Yeah, so uh, first of all, it's, it varies in practice. The question is how do, the, how do they get someone to come to faith? Well, of course, in their mind, they're not trying to get people to come to faith. It's really, as I said, for them, evangelism is more of a uh, search and find mission. They're trying to find elect people. They won't know if they're elect until they believe the gospel, but that's to them that's the evidence of their salvation, not the means of their salvation. So they don't like the word choice. Remember we talked about that last time. Uh, Paul and I were talking because he had shown me some Calvinist pamphlets that he has, and uh, he was pointing out opening paragraph of one of them which very plainly says you know you don't have a choice don't tell people would you like to choose Christ or make a decision they don't like the word decision either you know because in their mind it's not a decision you didn't decide to believe the gospel God believed the gospel for you on your behalf (laughs) so so they wouldn't frame it in terms of how do they make people come to faith and by the way I wouldn't say that either this is splitting hairs but we can't argue people into the faith it's the gospel that's the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. So it's our job to present the gospel clearly and accurately, and then it's their job to believe it. I don't. I can't sort of make you believe, and you can't make me believe. But I know what you mean. That's not what you meant. You mean you know how do they, uh, how do they share the gospel with it a, with a, uh, in a in a way that's going to lead to a response, right? How do they get a new member? You know, I mean, it's like are you a or not? Gee, yeah. <laughs> are you elect or not? Call God. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. I mean, they—they they, uh, most of the Calvinists would come from like Presbyterian, Covenant, uh, you know, a lot of the new newer churches today like Nine Marks with Mark Dever, T4G, Together for the Gospel, um, Gospel Coalition. Some of those groups are all, you know, lockstep on the issue of Calvinism. Southern Baptists have become almost exclusively Southern Baptists now, the ones that aren't are leaving. Um, so, yeah, I, don't, I mean, we're getting into the granularity that is going to differ from church to church, um, but I can tell you, you won't find a Calvinist church that gives an altar call because they don't believe that people can respond and come forward and say, I'm convicted of my sin and my need for a Savior and I want to trust in Jesus Christ as my Savior. Now I have problems with the way some altar calls are done too, but not for that reason. I absolutely believe we should issue a clarion call to the gospel every time we speak, with rare exception. And most of the time, I do. That's our mission at Not by Works Ministries: is the clarity, accuracy, and urgency of the gospel. There are exceptions. There are times when I'm speaking, and I just the, the nature of the topic or the presentation is something that it's geared mostly toward believers, and I fail to my shame at the end to to give a gospel presentation. But most of the time you're going to hear the gospel every time I speak, because it's the gospel that's the power of God to salvation, and I don't know who might wander in and might not be saved, right? So I want to make sure I issue the gospel call. So I don't have a problem in and of itself with altar calls, but the way most altar calls are done, it's come forward and make this commitment, or sign this card, or pledge your life, or give your life to Jesus, or come and promise to stop sinning, and somehow it's it's all wrapped up in this bilateral arrangement where we're calling on people to do something and if they do enough, then God says, I'll let you in. Uh, that's not helpful. And that's caused a lot of confusion in a lot of churches. Um, but Calvinists wouldn't offer any real type of altar call for the most part, uh, at least not in an evangelistic setting. They may, uh, in a sense of, you know, calling on believers to, uh, you know, re uh restate their passion for the lord or, or repent of sin or you know you, you know there could be other from a sanctification side even though they don't see a distinction between sanctification and justification but talking to believers there may be a case like i've been at conferences where they're calvinist uh, themed and yet they would still call for a time of uh, self-introspection and challenge people while the music is playing to come forward and really you know Evaluate things in their life, but not in terms of evangelism, not not in that sense at all. So, so what does, yeah? Oh, I'm sorry, I didn't see you. Go ahead. Does a Calvinist believe a Jew could be elect? Yeah, they don't, uh, yeah, of course, they believe anyone can be elect. They just believe that, you know, it's, it's that we should function in our day-to-day lives as if election is the determining factor. Does that make sense? Whereas I believe, yes, election, we believe it, God's Word teaches it, but we put that on the shelf because we don't have the mind of God and people don't have an E emblazoned on their forehead, right? So I believe that, yes, election is real and God's Word teaches it, but here in the real world, not the eternal world, You know, all 7.5 billion people on earth could get saved if they believe the gospel. And I don't know who's elected and who's not. Remember the quote I gave last uh, time of Bob Leitner? He pointed out very astutely that throughout Scripture, there's not a single place that distinguishes the elect from the non-elect in their unregenerate state. Every time the Bible speaks of the elect, when it's talking about individuals, it's talking about people who have already been saved. So all I'm saying is, When someone places their faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who died and rose again for their sins, that moment, once they've done that, we can say, oh, they're elect. I don't think that or say that because it's kind of irrelevant because I'm not God. I'm not trying to keep score. Uh, I just know that by virtue of their faith, they've become born again. Um, But other than that, we can't look at an unbeliever, a non-Christian, and make any determination about whether they're elect or not. It's not our job. So we don't, uh, we don't, we shouldn't f- categorize in that way, but they do. In fact, Jesus only died for the elect, and if you're not elect, you're sorry. <laughs> you, you know, there's no remedy. You you can't couldn't possibly believe the gospel, and if you are elect, you couldn't possibly reject the gospel. That's their view. What were you going to say? He's talking about God. God's choice. So God's election is a free, sovereign, unconditional choice of sinners. God chooses sinners without regard to any conditions. No, no. God's choice. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Good question. All right. So let's see what the Bible says. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to tell you. Then I'm going to show you. The Bible says there is one condition for eternal life, and that's faith. I mean, that's plain enough, right? Uh, when Paul and Silas were in the jail in Philippi, they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. They didn't say, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, it proves you're elect. They said, cause and effect, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The verse we read earlier, uh, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever what believes should not perish but have everlasting life. We also looked at the opposite. He who believes in Him is not condemned. If you don't believe, you are condemned. Why are you condemned? Because you have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Romans 5.1. Being justified how? How are we justified? By election? No, by faith, right? By faith we have peace with God. So, you know, you want to have peace with God? You can't just say, hey, would you like to have positional peace with God to be reconciled, like someone over here said, be made right with God? then hope that you're elect. That, that's not what we say. We said, no you want to have peace with God you want to be made right with God. I mean read the whole chapter Romans 5 it's a brilliant chapter talking about the old Adam first Adam, the second Adam and, and uh, how we're separated from God by our sin. but how do you how are you justified by faith? That's a cause and effect. That's a condition, right? It's a condition. Paul says it this way in Romans 4 to him who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. So what makes us righteous? Our faith, not election. Faith is the instrumental cause of regeneration, of salvation. That's why I say that over and over and over again. Jesus said in John 6:47, Most assuredly I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. Cause and effect. Even John Calvin disagrees with modern-day Calvinists. He says, for however universal the promises of salvation may be, we know that the promises are effectual only when we receive them in faith. In other words, he agrees, and it's pretty clear in Scripture, that the call to salvation is universal. Whosoever will may come. But that doesn't mean that everybody's saved. Only those who receive the promise by faith uh, is saved. So that's from Calvin's Institutes, Volume 3. Um, so, unconditional election. Calvinism fixates on God's sovereignty so that man becomes a passive agent with no ability to believe or respond in any way to the gospel call. This adversely affects all kinds of areas like evangelism, accountability for sin, and personal growth. Uh, how does it affect accountability for sin? Well, Uh, As I've talked about, to Calvinists, everything comes down to heaven or hell, right? They don't have a category of a carnal Christian. They don't have a category of of a Christian, a believer, who is struggling with sin. So if they see someone struggling with sin, they hastily conclude they're not a Christian. Because the only explanation must be that they never were elect, because if they were elect, the Spirit of God, the same way He forces them to believe, would force them to persevere. So if you're not persevering, you must not be regenerate. So it really, it, it, it has implications for counseling. I've told the story uh, before that was uh, uh, crystallized into a, a journal article years ago called Dan's Dilemma about uh, a young man that was a dear friend of mine. I grew up with him who was struggling with sin, and, and every time he had a major moral failure, which sadly happened multiple times, The best the church could do for him is say, Well, you must not be saved. You've got to try again. Go back and really mean business this time. Because as we're going to see, uh, for a Calvinist, they, you know, this goes back to your question, but I want to amend my answer a little bit. For them, it's not just basically trying to peek inside someone's heart and say, Are you elect or not? There is a call that they place upon people, which in their minds validates whether they're elect or not elect. And that is their, their degree to which they're willing to surrender, to commit, to pledge, to promise. That if you want to really see if someone's elect, check out their contract. And if they're fully committed, you know, forsaking all sin, you know, as John MacArthur puts it, I'm going to come back to that later then that, that, that validates that they're really, you know, elect. So if subsequently someone like my friend, Dan's not his real name, by the way, uh, falls into sin, well, he wasn't committed. He didn't mean business. That's a favorite phrase of this. You must not have meant business with the Lord. You got to go back to the bargaining table. This time really mean it when you tell him you're going to forsake all your sin. And so that's, you know, that, that's the implication here for spiritual growth. If you get got a person struggling with sin, the the, the Calvinist counselor is going to land in the same spot every time, which is you must not be a Christian. And, uh, and I mean, that's not very much of an overstatement, by the way. I know I, I do tend to paint with a broad brush on this issue because I've been around it so much. But, yeah, by and large, that's their view. Uh, of course, they have to admit that Christians can sin a little bit. But as James Montgomery Boyce put it, and I quote this in the book, and I probably will quote it at some point during this series, you know, Christians can fall. They just can't fall the whole way. What does that mean? What in the world does that mean? I mean, how far can I fall before it proves I didn't really believe? (laughs) I didn't really mean business. I didn't really commit, surrender, pledge, promise, all that. So, um, so I, you know, I think a better, more biblical approach than unconditional election is to refer to it as unmerited election. Again, my problem is not with the idea of election, with all due respect to friends and colleagues of mine that take a different approach in their critique of Calvinism, which I appreciate. I believe that the Bible does teach election, and uh, you know, we don't understand it, but we don't need to understand it this side of heaven. It's not That's not the issue, right? Same thing that we deal with when we deal with uh, uh, tragedies, right? I mean, when a tragedy happens, like those 40-some-odd uh, immigrants that were killed in the tractor-trailer this week or children that are shot in a school shooting, I mean, can anyone here really claim to fully understand and comprehend the why of that? course not but we don't allow evil and tragedies like that to impugn the sovereignty of god do we i mean we shouldn't now some people that does in my book top 10 reasons i have a whole chapter on how that type of tragic horrific life experience like our friends back in houston who had four people shot and killed by an escaped murderer uh, just recently was all over the news Uh, i mean how in the world does that happen a grandfather and three of his grandsons they just you can't even fathom that but at the funeral which they had a massive funeral with all four caskets they emphasized romans 5:20, where sin abounds grace abounds all the more and i never really thought of that verse in that way but it's like god's grace is sufficient even in tragedies like this so if we have a proper biblical view we don't allow the tragedies of life to impugn the sovereignty of god or shake our fist at heaven we shouldn't do that so why in the world would it be any different when we think about free will and election as it relates to salvation Uh, i don't understand why god elects some and not others i don't need to understand that what i understand is that god is god i am not and he says whosoever will may come and i'm going to preach the gospel till I die or Jesus comes, and never give one second of thought to whether the people within the sound of my voice are elect or not. It, it makes no difference to me. Yeah. is all Christ died for all. So the, to to have a so the question is are all elected because Christ died for all? Uh, no. Uh, all are not elected. That's plain enough. So Christ died for all, but remember, His death doesn't guarantee that everybody's saved. His death just makes it possible for everybody to be saved. His death paid the penalty. It paid the price, but you have to accept the payment, right? So anyone in the world can be saved. Christ's death is sufficient for all, but efficient only for those who believe. If a person rejects the gift, thank you for paying for my sins, Jesus, I could never have paid for them myself. I really appreciate it, but no thanks. That person's going to hell. But it doesn't mean he didn't die for them. In fact, if you look over at uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, and we'll get into this when we get into limited atonement, but 2 Peter chapter 2, uh, Peter describes, There are also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, watch this, even denying the Lord who bought them. So clearly Peter tells us Jesus died and paid the penalty for the sins for these false teachers. But then if you read on, especially starting in chapter 4, he describes the ultimate eventuality of these people for whom Jesus died. And he says in verse 17, for whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. To me, this is the... Biggest smoking gun against the view of limited atonement because you've got people for whom Jesus died ending up in hell. Why do they end up in hell? Because they didn't receive the payment made on their behalf. So no, uh, the fact that Jesus died for all does not mean that all are elect. Uh, again, election is not does not need to be in the mix when we're talking about theology in this present realm. Cause effect, unbelievers, believers justification, sanctification, eternal salvation, all of these things. Uh, the simple fact of the matter is that whosoever will may come, people that reject the gospel, as we read in John 3:18, are going to spend eternity in hell. And yes, in eternity, when time shall be no more, only the non-elect will be in hell and only the elect will be in heaven. But that's shouldn't even be on our radar at this point because we don't have the mind of God. No one is marked out with an E. Um, and so we, we assume, for lack of a better way to describe it, that everyone is elect and we hope and tr- share the gospel and see who believes and who doesn't. But again, I know that sounds contrary and a Calvinist would be screaming at me right now because they're not comfortable with that tension. You know, it's a turnkey operation for them from the T to the P. It all has to make sense. And, and it's a cop-out, they think, for me or anyone in my view, to say that, you know, we can't explain election and free will. Uh, They say, yeah, we can. It's all election. It's all sovereignty. It's no free will. That's that's what they teach. So, uh, you know, unmerited election or undeserved election would be another way to put it. Um, Again, you know, at the end of the day, we're not elect because of anything that we do. Uh, we're saved because of the one condition of faith, and more than 160 times in the New Testament alone, eternal life is conditioned upon faith alone and Christ alone. Uh, God brings the gospel. We believe it, right? God gives eternal life. We receive it. God accomplishes our salvation at the cross. We accept it. God offers forgiveness, and we obtain it by faith. So again, this isn't us saving ourselves. We're availing ourselves of what God has done to get us out of our own predicament. So we sinned, uh, separating us from a holy God, and God reached out in spite of our sin and provided a way of escape. So God desires all to be saved. That's very clear uh, from 2 Timothy two four. God desires all men to be saved. So if God's, you know, actually wanting to send some to hell, how would this verse make any sense whatsoever? All right. So we're over our time. I'm going to stop there. We'll look at more scripture references, a lot more scripture references next week to to prove this notion of what I'm suggesting should be undeserved election, not unconditional. Any closing questions or thoughts? All right, well, let's close in prayer and then we'll be dismissed. Father, I do thank you for the incredible, amazing, matchless grace that we see at the cross. And Lord, help us to, uh, to give you all the glory and praise for it. Never to take any credit for ourselves, but to recognize that we simply availed ourselves of a gift that you gave us, paid for by the precious blood of your Savior, uh, your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. And it's in his precious name that we pray. Amen.